do you have merch yet? No merch. Oh, come on. We got to cold open some merch. We have we have virtual merch. We have Virch. Yeah, there we go. Because some people in our community made a like yellow text on purple background generator and you can kind of gen up a T-shirt with that. We uh, we were making uh, Brad and Will NFTs. They're trading cards. Mm-hmm. There's ninety nine. Uh, they're ninety nine dollars each. Some of the prizes include dinner with me. I don't know if that's a good prize, but it's what we have. Play golf on one of our many golf courses. Um, there's there's a picture of me riding a purple and gold <laughs> elephant with no shirt on. I don't know why. What? Man, how do you how do you how do you just get into NFTs now? I really thought the merch should be. Just Brad's old monitors. Mm. <laughs> Those monitors have gone to the great beyond, unfortunately, <laughs> at this point. I tried. I actually went on the Discord and said, hey, I'm about to e-cycle these monitors. Does anyone want them? No takers. By e-cycle them, you mean you put them on a chair with a sign that said free outside your front door, right? No, I I, I scheduled actual e-waste pickup. Wow. Well, they come pick it up. I thought long and hard about it. I like I. OK, I started to donate them. OK, to like a goodwill situation. And even they said no. They were like, no, thank you. <laughs> I didn't actually try. I, I mean, I considered doing that. I considered going on Craigslist and saying like, hey, free monitors, just come pick them up. And then I thought about what's in those monitors and how old they are. Yeah, there's a lot of guinea pig dust in there. No, I mean, like the cold cathode cathode backlights, like that's how old those monitors are, is that they're way, way pre LED. And I thought like the amount of electricity these things use and the closeness to their death they probably are is actually just that's that's like that's doing someone a disservice to make them take these monitors and use them because they're going to suck up way too much power and they're going to die at any moment. Taking them out of circulation was the right choice, I think. I think you should have slapped a content at town sticker on them. And they should have been at a, a re- Patreon reward tier. Look, Kishore, I, I'm not going to lie. I looked up to see how much it would cost to get purple sweatpants with yellow Will and Brad slapped on the ass cheeks would cost. Unfortunately, it was too much. It's that that's our hockey. That's the hockey jersey of this podcast. I don't, I don't know if any price is too much for that. <laughs> the real question is who goes on which cheek? Well, Brad goes on left cheek and I go on right cheek. Clearly, it's Brad and Will. The and is in the middle. Welcome to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. I'm Brad. Joining us today is a very special guest and our dear friend, Kishore Hari. Uh, welcome back to the show, Kishore. I'm really excited to be here. Either this means the world is ending yet again, uh, or there's a sale on bidets somewhere. Like th- Those are the only two options for me being, appearing on this podcast. Your bidet fluencer gig is, uh, is starting to pick up, I've heard. So uh, uh, luckily, the world's not ending again. We, I didn't introduce you as our apocalypse consultant. Uh, so uh, we're here to talk about science today, though. It's going to be it's going to be fun because uh, I, I think I, I feel like we introduced you as this before. But in case people don't know. Yeah, you are a professional science communicator. You tell people you explain the science to the people in a way that is digestible and understandable and fair and just and and, uh, you know, conveys the important stuff without being sensational or I, I look, you t- I don't I don't know. Am I doing a good job explaining? 
I, I think you're you're really setting me up for failure because this is I, I really wanted to talk at people instead of talk with. Now now I feel like now I feel like I have to be reasonable in my descriptions of of science this year. Oh no no no! There's nothing reasonable about science. That's that's well established. Um, we, so we're doing something a little bit different this week. We wanted to do kind of a hey, here's the the stuff that we thought was interesting in science this year. Like the the it's not necessarily like the biggest stories, but it's the stuff that we thought was cool. Uh, yeah. kind of across the board. It's kind of a show and tell. Everybody picked a couple of stories from this year that were let's say inspiring. Yeah. I, I would say this is not the indie hits of science this year because there were so many big science stories that I think caught our attention that we are playing the hits today. Uh, but there's a reason we're playing the hits because the hits were amazing this year. Yeah. And, and there's there's also like I, I I looked at like mRNA impacting cancer vaccine, the like the work that went into the mRNA vaccines seems like it's going to completely change a lot of infectious disease stuff in the next like three to five years. But there was so much happening there. I kind of couldn't find a th- one thing to pick because it's like th- there's there were 50 little I mean, little big things that came out this year about this. We're not going to talk about that just up front. It's always hard to pick out science stories because I think we default to discovery as a way of selecting science stories. But we I think we can all relate to the fact that science is incremental. There are all these mini progresses that happen that lead to this thing that we label as discovery, but it's really the agglomeration of all of that work together. So when you're talking about stuff like uh, vaccine development or drug development or a myriad of other things in, in health or in numerous other scientific fields, like picking the point at which you say, like, this is a huge story um, is a little bit arbitrary. And so with that qualification, let's talk about some arbitrary stories that we found yeah. pretty interesting. Uh, Honestly, my my guiding principle here was what did I find inspiring? What fired the imagination for me is is kind of how I picked. Should we start with the most beautiful story of the year? Then? Yeah, I think sure. so. Which, which which one that could that could be multiple things. I, I think we'll start with the just wonderful telescope and which is what I encourage everyone else to call it for reasons. If you Google his <laughs> name, you'll discover reasons why you should just call it the just wonderful telescope. And I'm going to start with a non-science element of what JWST brought us this year. And that's just pure beauty. Uh, I don't think it can be understated when I rewind the clock to the mid 90s. Um, how impactful it was when I saw the Pillars of Creation photo from Hubble. Uh, Like we all know, if we say the word Pillars of Creation, an image pops up in our head. And the meaning of those images to uh, feeling the imagination and inspiration of people across the world, in addition to all the people that have talked about how those images encourage them to become astronomers and astrophysicists and the like can't be understated. And there's so much that emerged from JWST this year that was just beautiful. Put aside the science for a second. My personal favorite is a spiral galaxy. It's NGC 628. It was imaged with the MIRI instrument, which is the mid-infrared uh, instrument and the JWST. And it's a nearly perfectly symmetrical spiral galaxy. How does our universe make something so symmetrical at the scales that we're talking about here? Um, And then there was the uh, to me, um, the image that I have framed in my house is the zoom in of the Korean nebula, which is a, you know, a stellar nursery. Uh, And I just found like the overlay of 
the zoomed in part that JBST took of the Karina Nebula over the Hubble image just it, it like it still brings a tear to my eye thinking about the vastness that that represents and the birth of stars and what I hope is the birth of life. Um, and then there's the actual kind of science part. Um, and I think the most important science to me that JWST brings about is its work on looking at atmospheric composition. Uh, and this year we saw the initial signs of what it can do. So it looked at, um, you know, one planet it looked at, and it looks at this by looking at the light of the star shining through the atmosphere of this planet and kind of coming into the instrument. It, and from that, you can use a spectrometer to actually analyze the potential um, uh, atomic composition. So the it looked at uh, a, plant, a planet in the WASP 96 uh, area, WASP 96b. This is a planet that's 0.48 um, uh, the mass of Jupiter. Uh, but it's so close to its sun that it orbits it uh, three every three and a half days. Uh, it's it, a three and a half day long year. Holy yeah, cow. It, and so just imagine a planet that's about half the mass of Jupiter circling its star every three and a half days. It's incredible. It's an incredibly hot planet. It's about thousand degrees. Um, but they were able to image um, a water in its atmosphere. Water that close. I mean, this star is not as uh, hot as our sun, but it was able to image that. And then you can imagine what this unlocks. Uh, and just this weekend, um, as we're recording this, there was an astronomy conference where they started to unveil how they've been. They studied for about a week and a half um, planets in the Trappist One system. This is a system that the Kepler. Uh, a, a telescope uh, observed in 2017 and identified seven planets around a star that's still cooler than the sun. It's about 39 light years away. All the planets in this uh, system are closer in its orbit than Mercury is to our sun. So it's a really tight uh, orbital structure and they're all rocky planets. And because these planets are much smaller um, than the Jupiter-like planet that I talked about earlier. It's hard to kind of tease out the signal. Uh, but over the next few months, they're going to be like deeply analyzing that data, and they're already getting some atmospheric composition. So they looked at one of the, the planet that um, is closest to that star, uh, and they found a, a significant amount of hydrogen in its atmosphere. We're really going to be looking at this over the next year um, and seeing like, what do we know about the atmospheric composition? And when we start to see water in a planet that's in the Goldilocks zone, what could that possibly mean? The the imagery, the the like long distance imagery that's been dominating the news has been so prevalent. I had no idea that they were even using this telescope for planetary science. That's that's wild. Is I, I, I don't I don't know a ton about like xenobiology. Is, is is the presence of water still considered like the necessary precondition for for life to emerge, or is is it just considered like one of many? I mean, obviously there are like other liquids, you know, other other conditions, or is is, is that still the holy grail? It it is one of many, but without water, we we can't even have a starting conversation. I, it's, it's it's amazing the 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 images that strike me out of JWST. Like when when they've gone through and recreated or, or redone the, the deep field surveys, where you know you, you thirty years ago, I guess they aimed Hubble at a small patch of what we thought was dark sky and just you know kept taking pictures there, kept taking pictures there until there was a big composite of what looks like a you know a, a thousand 
galaxies and the 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 deep fields of JWST are even more breathtaking than than those images after you know 30 years of doing these you think we wouldn't be surprised that there's just always more stars always more galaxies but <laughs> yeah here we are do you, do you think do you think there's potential for the big number to go up again I feel like it was like what 20 years ago that it was like oh there are roughly I don't know 100 billion known galaxies and now I think that number's up to like two trillion. I'm not sure the number of galaxies matter because like the thing that won't go up is I think we have a very good handle on the mass of the universe. So like these are all kind of rounding errors in the larger scheme of things. Um, So, yeah, maybe there's a little bit more visible light out there than what we think, but it still does not explain the giant gap we have in the mass of the universe versus what we are able to see and what is emitting light. Um, So even if there is like a change, like you're, you're talking about, it's still a overall rounding error. I think it matters more to our psyche knowing that the vastness of space is just incredible to behold. Can we, can we talk about dark energy now? Oh, sorry. Sorry. I know know you have a great segue. It's an amazing segue. (laughs) I'm sorry. Just table it for two seconds. Okay. I was going to ask one more question here. Um, so, like, you're, you're talking about uh, the JWST being used to study known exoplanets. Do you know if it's also going to be employed in detecting more unknown exoplanets? Because I know, you know, the, the existing methods, like, what is it, kind of planetary transit across the star and studying wobble of wobble of star under gravitational influence, all that stuff. Like, are, are, do you think, like, new methods of finding more planets are going to emerge from this thing? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um my hunch from talking to some astrophysics colleagues is because time on the telescope is so precious because there's so many demands on it that in the near term, most of the proposals they're accepting and areas they're going to point at are places that we've already imaged before. So don't expect uh, JWST to be pointing at just unknown areas where it's just going to randomly find a transit just because we have so many targets already to look at more deeply. Now, you know, four or five years from now, 10 years from now, is that going to be the case? I, I I don't know. That's a good question. I would. Okay. I, Will, we can move on. I, I would love to talk to whoever it is that administrates time on that thing. Who, who is the gatekeeper for who gets to use that, that thing and for not, how long? Can't be a fun job. Oh. Well, I mean, typically they have a committee on stuff like that, right? Yeah, so it's like, course. it's people, people review grant uh, review papers and, and, and judge based on the relative merits and what they think is going to be the outcome and, uh, or the take the hall. But yeah, it's, it seems like a lot. All right. Dark energy. There's your segue. Yeah. Dark energy. Perfect segue. Um, I learned about quintessence this year, which I didn't I didn't know about before. Um, for people who aren't familiar, uh, when when Einstein came up with general relativity 100 years ago, th- th- he added this thing in called the cosmological constant because they felt like the universe should be static at that time, They're neither expanding nor contracting as it is, as it was, as it always will be. Uh, and then and then Hubble, a few years after that, discovered that the discovered redshift and discovered that that implied that the universe was expanding. And Einstein famously said that his biggest mistake was putting the cosmological constant in the, in the biggest mistake of his life was adding the cosmological constant. So he pulled it back out of general relativity, threw it in the trash. And then you fast forward 70, 60, 70 years. And uh, we were able to measure the distance uh, to extremely distant supernova very precisely. And we found again that the universe is accelerating, not just expanding. So it, it, it you know, previous, so we went from static to constantly getting bigger at the same rate to constantly getting bigger at a, at a changing rate. 
And uh, that implied the existence of dark energy, which is something which is a force like in, in a world where the universe is made up only of matter and nothing else then the universe would eventually crunch down into a single point where, you know, an infinitely dense black hole, yada, yada. The dark energy is this is the thing that we use to balance out the sheet to kind of make it seem as though that so, so, so that there's something pushing out from the force of gravity that would be pulling all things together. I'm just watching Kishore and hoping that he continues nodding here, because as long as he continues <laughs> nodding here, I, do, I know I'm doing OK. Um, but but the idea that the that the power, the force of the dark energy which still, frankly, seems kind of bullshit to me, um, is constantly expanding, is is constantly getting, ch- is changing strength over time, is is really interesting. And the, these three folks, uh, Cosmo, Andre, Anna, Yas, I think, and uh, Paul Steinhardt, uh, did did the math this year and uh, on the quintessence on their quintessence series. And if they're correct, the upshot is that there's a little less time than we expected before the universe begins to contract. Like, like, yeah, well, I think there, there's been my understanding is for the last several years, the thought was that it would never start to contract, that the acceleration would only continue and that the universe would just expand forever. And that, I feel like that's gone back and forth at least once in our lifetime. So we're arguing at a chalkboard right now. I want everyone to kind of put aside like their the idea that like physicists uh, or astrophysicists are having like these heated debates about like, no, the universe will contract. And no, th- they're having math arguments at boards. Um, is is what's going on. And Will's right. Dark energy is basically a huge unknown in a number of mathematical equations that explain an enormous part of the universe. And but, but it's something we've never observed, right? It, we don't we haven't no, observed it. We don't have a dark that exists. <laughs> yeah. It's, okay. it's just an explanation, and, yeah. right? Or a, a, a fudge. And like the the thing that we should acknowledge is there is a thing called inflationary theory that explains like femtoseconds after the beginning of the universe. There's this rapid um, uh, expansion of the universe that ha- leads to all of these long-term consequences, including um, the continued acceleration, uh, a part of the universe that like Saul Perlmutter and others received a Nobel Prize for in, uh, from their work in the mid-90s establishing that. Now, inflationary theory is just a theory. There's a, um, a number of experimental projects like BICEP2 in the Antarctic that have tried to really confirm that in, in aspects of inflationary theory and the and the uh, uh, three scientists you mentioned, they study inflationary theory and are trying to come up with explanations for pieces of that theory that don't kind of work. And this idea of quintessence is really saying like this cosmological constant, like there's no reason there's just this random constant for the universe. Like there isn't like a pie for the universe. Like what is this constant where there's a number without which the atoms wouldn't congeal. Right. What is this constant represent? And quintessence is like an attempt to try to explain uh, what that cosmological constant is. And if quintessence aligns with the theories that, uh, that uh, these three have put forth, then there's the possibility of the ramification of that could be that uh, that the universe contracts. The, um, uh, do you, you all know Katie Mack? She's a, a, a great course, yeah. astrophysicist. She was actually Paul Steinhardt's student. She is uh, he was her uh, thesis advisor and she wrote a book called The End of Everything a couple of years ago that goes into all of these theories, like whether we just have. Uh, continual expansion and the heat death of the universe where just all heat just sort of evaporates and then we're left with the black void of, of nothingness 
some of these uh, contraction um, theories, uh, uh, whether uh, the Galra from Voltron come in and take quintessence and transform it into into energy, as I I believe is canon. I, I, uh, I missed that one in her book. Uh, yeah, that one's not, I don't, I don't remember that it one. got cut by the editors. I, I don't oh, understand. It must, must have been in the in the pre pre reads the proofs. But I I think this argument is like it's a decades long argument that we're seeing like continual, like incremental progress on. And the quintessence one is really um, uh, it's an interesting one. It's a little mind bending. Uh, and I think what uh, becomes fascinating is as experiments come online to potentially um, explore elements that could give us hints and insights into this. Yeah. And, and so it seems like, I, I don't know what those experiments are. Like, are, are we looking, is this like a Nancy Roman telescope situation? Is this, you know, it could be like bicep two is one that is looking at like, um, uh, elements, uh, from, uh, early universe as well, that it would give us insight into inflationary theory. Uh, so yeah, there's a number of experiments. There will never be the experiment from what I understand to confirm this, but there are, uh, are a series of experiments that might give us insight into uh, early inflationary time that could give us um, uh, some hype. But, um, you know, I had a conversation with Brian Green years ago and he's like, we're le- reaching the edge where experimental physics, like the amount of energy that's required to explore some of these spaces with like uh, accuracy and precision is just beyond our capability. We'd have to start building like things the size of solar systems or galaxies to explore this to achieve the energy we need to to look back. And that's just not possible. So uh, in this way, uh, I, it's a exploration of the mind as much as anything else. Maybe this is how that perfectly spiral galaxy got built. Um, th- do I do I do I oh, sorry oh, do oh, I oh. do I understand right about inflationary theory that like the, like the thought is that like very minor features of that very early expansion, like little nuances in the way matter was distributed are what led to like a lot of the current structures we see, like the distribution of galaxies directly followed from like very minor variations. Yeah. I, I am upset on the universe's behalf for what you called minor, because we're talking about like, (laughs) we're talking about things like where it's like the energy to break apart the uh, bonds of, of atoms. Like we're talking about, like you're talking about minor changes in that kind of fundamental force. Um, it, like it's, we're talking about energy soups of like magnitude that we can't um, really conceive of. Um, it's just over a time scale that is, is so small that it's hard to conceive is what I think is really challenging about it for how I picture it. Femtoseconds. Fractions of femtoseconds, I, and I'm sure I'm off by orders of magnitude. I think the the tech pod um, science channel is probably going to correct me because it's probably like more like <laughs> ten to the minus thirty five seconds or something like that. The, the the other thing I wanted to mention here is that I got very strong when I pulled up this Google do, uh, Docs document. I got very strong luminiferous ether vibes from the term quintessence. <laughs> <laughs> and I started thinking, like, maybe some of these teams of researchers need some, like, branding exercises. I guess you could say the same thing about dark energy, though. Well, look, n- naming stuff is hard. We all know that uh, sure. here at Brad and Will made a tech pod, a name that mm-hmm. we uh, came up with as a placeholder name and then accidentally published the podcast. Yeah. Oops. Um uh, I, the, the, the big question I have about all this stuff. So the, the, there were two interesting takeaways from this. One is that like the, the lower bound on when universal shrinking could start is like a hundred million years from now, which while a long time on a human scale is relatively short on a cosmological scale. 
Um, the, like that means we could see a u- universal contraction before the end, you know, the, the sun runs through its main, main course of fuel. And, and like, this is a novel, con- like the idea that, that the universe could fundamentally change in the lifespan of our solar system is kind of novel to me. And I, I like, I wonder, does, does universal contraction change things on a human scale? Like do thermodynamics behave differently because things are getting closer to get like what, what changes in the, does anything change in the world a hundred million years from now? Assuming we make it that far. So this is, you know, beyond my depth. Um, but from what I've read from like Katie's work and, and some others, uh, the short answer is no. Even if like the wildest kind of theories about this come true, it's still operating at a time scale where we'd all be dead. Uh, like the human okay. race would be gone just because like even in the time scale you're talking about. Uh, we, so like six, seven months from now. Yeah, we have to. <laughs> We have to expand uh, well beyond um, our solar system and um, uh, to really even consider that a possibility. So I like I'm not willing to let climate change go to the next generation, but this one I am really willing to let. Okay, fair. This this might be wildly oversimplified, but I mean, you're kind of talking about like basic tenets of physics changing as the nature and scale of space changes. Right. But I mean, like space is expanding rapidly right now. And, we're I, not, you know, we don't I see. wouldn't think about it that way. I really think about it as like there's um, there's elements of our explanation of physics that we have put placeholders in because we don't have a full definition of what that is. And so we can call that physics is changing. But I think it, of it as more it's like it's filling out. It's a more complete physics that's coming online as opposed to it's fundamentally changing in some way i don't have a good segue for the next one what is what is the next one i i thought we'd talk about uh our friend uh you know human endurance is the is the is the topic of the day i think here you know it's it's making lots of small incremental changes advancements in science over a long period of time yeah why don't we why don't we hey science happened in the past too why don't we look backwards for a bit instead of forwards um so this year, the wreck of the Endurance, which was the ship uh, of the final major expedition to the Antarctic in the kind of what is the formal term for that period in the kind of late 19th, early 20th century, the kind of heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Large men with dogs yes. traversing yes. impossible terrain. A lot of a lot of European countries were funding expeditions to the Antarctic, probably for commercial and geopolitical reasons, if I had to guess. Uh, because hey, it was a whole it was a whole continent just sitting there waiting to be dominated. Because anyway, four X game back then, Brad. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, I I don't know if are, are you guys familiar with that expedition and Shackleton? Like he's a he's a really kind of he's kind of a amusing larger than life figure. He was like a huge drinker, like apparently like an enormously charismatic kind of a womanizer, but like loved by charming. all loved by all and sundry though. Apparently like a, a very inspiring leader. Well, you know, like in in the final analysis. He led this expedition down there that never even made it to Antarctica and got stuck for two years and nobody died. He managed to oh. engineer a rescue that saved all, I think it was 27 or maybe 28 men. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there are these incredible maps of the journey of where we think the endurance went down and then the rescue boat where they had to like sail away and how they went onto uh, uh, land. And those maps are amazing because uh, like even you give me modern technology, I'm not sure I survived that trip. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So it's essentially, they they sailed to Antarctica in the Endurance, and it got mired in pack ice and was trapped for I think it was ten months. You know, with 
various periods of drift happening. It, it never it got relatively close to Antarctica, but never actually made landfall. Um, eventually was so kind of crushed in the ice and the movements of the ice that it, it, it started, it first started taking on a lot of water and they had plenty of time to get all the supplies off, including I'm sure plenty of booze, uh, and all of the something like 70 sled dogs they had with them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, eventually it did sink after it had taken on enough water. Um, yeah, I mean, this is not really germane to the discovery of the wreck, but he and a small number, so they, they made it to elephant Island, established a base camp to try to survive. He and a small number of men took a whaling boat and sailed 800 miles to the closest human civilization. Isn't a whaling boat like 30 feet, like a 30 foot long rowboat at that, at that period? That is my understanding. So like I, I know wow. absolutely nothing about kind of maritime mechanics or whatever. But what I read about this is that 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 trip in that whaling boat is considered like one of the most heroic episodes of, of naval tra- or, or marine travel in history, essentially. Um, anyway. That's all fun. Also, another fun little side note, one of his previous expeditions down there, the campsite was discovered uh, about 12 years ago. I think it was around 2010. Uh, They found one of his previous camps and there were multiple intact cases of whiskey and brandy still there that were over 100 (laughs) years old, buried in the ice. Um, And there is actually it's not it's not amazing. I've had it there. There is a recreation called Shackleton of the of the blended Malt, malt scotch whiskey that was found at that base camp that is on the market. I, I, I don't know that I recommend it, but it's anyway, it's a fun side story. Uh, anyway, let's get to the shipwreck. So yes, there, there have been multiple attempts to find the shipwreck over the last say 20 years. I think I, I didn't find a lot of detail about why the one this year was finally the one that was uh, successful. The sure you pointed out that Saab, the car company, uh, made the submersibles that were used in finding the wreck. I, I love it. It's not the James Cameron, like sitting a little like, you know, Steve Zizou looking like submersible and going down to the wreck. It is. Um, Will, you remember going and seeing open ROV at Maker Faire all those years? Yeah, of course. It's a scaled up yeah, version of that uh, is what this thing looks oh. like. It is uh, kind of a flat ROV that has a, a camera at the front. Um, you know, it, it's much larger than that open ROV that, you know, Dave Lang and Eric St- uh, Stackable designed. But it's this kind of flat submersible that is just kind of maneuverable and has a big ass camera on it. Box with propellers and instruments attached. I mean, that, that was that was Dave's whole thing when he when he pitched that to us was like, hey, I wanted to make a cheap way to get instruments to the bottom of the to underwater places. And it turns out it's a smart way to do it. Where where did they find the how, so so I mean I assume luck plays into this a fair amount. You just go down and start looking, right? You, where you think it's likely? They had predictions about where it had drifted to, uh, and they were not exactly accurate, but it gave them obviously a search area. Um, so it was found at the bottom of the Weddell Sea at a depth of almost ten thousand feet. Which like I don't know a ton of shipwreck depths. I know the Titanic is I think around six thousand. 10,000 sounds extremely deep to me. <laughs> there may be deeper ones out there, but that's very deep. Um, the thing, well, there are a couple things that sort of fire the imagination about this story. The other one is the kind of tale of survival, but about the thing about the shipwreck to me that is so kind of marvelous is how remarkably well-preserved it is. Um, and there are a couple of thoughts. I mean, I'm sure this is still under study, but there are a couple of thoughts about why that is. Number one, it seems that cold water wrecks just tend to deteriorate more slowly than wrecks in warm water. But the bigger one here is that the scientists on the expedition have inferred that there are no wood eating microorganisms at this depth and this low temperature uh, at the bottom of the Antarctic, like there are in warmer waters. So that thing, I mean, there's plenty of, you know, very nice 4k footage out there of this thing. And 
it's kind of chilling almost to me like haha pun intended but like it, it's 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 a, i get a little like you know you get chills looking at it because it is it is just sitting there intact on the bottom of the antarctic and like the lettering i don't know if that's brass or whatever but the endurance lettering on the whole is just there and like in in excellent shape i mean it's it's really just kind of remarkable to watch the yeah footage. i encourage people to watch the footage like on the life question so scientists have been analyzing the footage because it was shot in um in 4k as you mentioned and there is a lot of life down there uh and most of it is stuff that we would uh, ascribe to as like filter feeders and they're feeding on something we call um, marine snow. It is basically algae that die and like fall towards the bottom. And so there's a lot of stuff like starfish. They found uh, a couple lobsters that kind of look like hermit crabs um, that kind of, um, you know, show up under a, a UV light. So there's a, t it's teeming with life, but there isn't the kind of bacterial organisms that would uh, digest wood. Uh, and there aren't the kind of currents that we'd expect at the bottom of the sea that would just physically rip it apart as well. The other thing is that that it, it the wreck is in a protected area, so you can't touch it. Like, you, we can never, according to current law, we will never remove anything from it. So I know, like, People at the British Museum are sad. They can't steal another thing to add to their museum. But um, it is just going to stay down there. And, and there's something about that that is lovely to me. Uh, and there's something yeah. about this that is also sad because we should have never been able to find this. This is a story of climate change allowing us to find this uh, ship. This should have been under 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 ice that we that we never could have gotten through. Right. And that is a depressing aspect of this that I um yeah, the, the fact that it's a it is a protected historic site, it's under under treaty. I mean, it's actual international agreement that has designated it uh, as such. Um, but if you compare if you compare it again to something like Titanic that has been repeatedly damaged by people exploring it. And like Cameron, Cameron literally landed a submersible on the deck of the Titanic at one point while he was down there shooting it. And so that wreck has just been abused excessively by explorers. So like for, for this to. For this to sit there as a monument to this historical event and not be messed with is is kind of kind of beautiful in a way to me. Well, and this is a wood hull ship too, right? Yes. So so like it's a, like the 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 metal hull of the Titanic eventually was going to rust and 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 go away. Uh, the the fact that the wood has nothing eating it there makes means that this conceivably could be there for a really really long time, which is which I think kind of lovely. Also, nobody died on it, which is a really refreshing change for most yes. uh, most shipwrecks. It turns yes. out. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so we've talked a lot about science. I kind of think it's time to do a little science. So, uh oh, so, wow, that is a hell of a segue there. So, it, it, Brad, in the show notes, there's a link to a Google Colab site, and um, there's a sequence uh -huh. that I want you to put into that site, and we'll kind of come back to it in a couple minutes uh, because I want to talk about Alpha Fold and. Uh, EMS fold, which I think are some of the most important developments in structural biology in a in a generation. Uh, AlphaFold is a project of, of DeepMind, Google offshoot. Uh, EMS fold is a project of a Meta. Uh, I'll get into the the differences here in a second. Um, first, a, a slight kind of oversimplification to talk about how important proteins are. So. Um, I'm on a tech pod, so I'm going to kind of like make a a strained analogy here. So if we think of like DNA as physical memory, 
RNA kind of works as sort of the RAM of the system and proteins are the software. They're, they're the thing that like does all the work that results in uh, the interfaces that actually meaningfully do stuff. So like protein functions, um, you know, they, they are make up antibodies, enzymes, structural report in cells, messengers, they transport uh, molecules ar- around our, our body. Uh, and the sequence of those proteins, which are made up of amino acids, and in humans, there's 20 common amino acids that make up those proteins. Their sequence determines their structure, and their structure determines their function. Now, when we talk about a system that has 20 amino acids, um, the, uh, the length of a protein is basically, it could be infinite, but with 20 amino acids, so you just chain them together and that forms, uh, these proteins, the possible proteins you would consider would be like 20 to the N power, de- depending on the length, um, essentially infinite, but because of constrained systems we live in, it's not infinite. There's finite, but it is a massive, massive number that we think is possible out there. Um, and so the, determining the structure of these proteins, especially the ones that are known, are essential for us to unlock all sorts of information on how things operate uh, in, in these systems. Um, and right now, the way a lot of this is discovered is like we will get a protein, we'll actually like, image it, like we'll make it like x-ray crystallography or you know other methods and basically say this is like the sequence of a protein and kind of work backwards. Well, these AI systems came in and essentially said, what if we can actually predict the structure of the proteins basically based off the sequences of proteins that are known and the shapes of proteins that are known? So AlphaFold a few years ago took on this idea of like, we're going to train on this shared database called the protein, the PDP. It's a protein structure uh, database. And we're going to enter these competitions called CAS. These are uh, annual novel protein prediction um, competitions that are hosted by a- academics every year. And, and they're coming up with models to predict the proteins for these competitions? Yeah, so AlphaFold came in with a uh, AI model to essentially say, we're going to predict the protein. So what the competition would do is they would actually go through and, and develop and do an X-ray crystallography on a, on a protein understand its its structure, have the model try to predict its structure without telling them the information and then compare the results at the end. It's a little more complicated than that, but like that's the basic idea. And so AlphaFill goes through a series of these competitions over the years and gets better and better and starts improving on the scale of these models. Last year, it essentially, uh, this is CAS 14, so it might be a year and a half ago, it essentially, there was no difference between the protein's in real life that we like image versus with a predicted structure from AlphaFold. And that was sort of heralded as like, holy crap, we got something here. Like, and uh, then this year, AlphaFold released a database of structures of their structure, their predicted structures of 200 million proteins in the human body. And their um, kind of a theory of the case here is that those are those 200 million proteins. Those are the known proteins and those will be the limit of human proteins in the, in the human body. Um, oh, they think that's a complete that set. That is close to the complete set. Um, and wow. so uh, I'm not a machine learn learning expert. So I'm, you know, I'm going to kind of qualify this, but they use this um, a system called a, uh, a, what's it called? A multi fold machine learning model versus Meta's EMS fold uses a transformer model, which is a natural language processing model. Uh, But anyway, so it 
they essentially use this model to essentially map how the chemical bonds actually shape and form so that they're able to predict these structures. So Brad, any chance that uh, finished running? It is in fact. So what I gave Brad, I gave him an input for a protein sequence um, and he put it into AlphaFold and actually ran it. Uh, And the output of that Google Colab is that it shows you the structure of that protein and gives you a 3D rendering of it. If you scroll down. Yes. Oh, it's actually literal 3D. You can manipulate it and move it around around and zoom it. So that sequence uh, was hemoglobin, which I gave you. And so what you see on your screen is you just uh, image the predicted sequence, uh, the predicted structure from AlphaFold of hemoglobin. And you can, hemoglobin is a well imaged uh, (laughs) protein, as you can imagine. You can Google hemoglobin and compare it. Um, And what you'll find is they're almost identical. Um, The place that they're not identical is that proteins also don't just exist upon themselves. They interact with other cofactors, whether it be with other proteins um, or with uh, other confounding elements. So in case of oxygen, there's, or in case of hemoglobin, there's oxygen and other cofactors that it's interacting with. Uh, and so the shape of hemoglobin that AlphaFold produces is super close. It's like, it's great for science, but it's not perfect. Um, because it doesn't model that interaction. And so beyond the AlphaFold releasing this database so that you can now query for a structure of protein and then go potentially make it, which accelerates the scientific process, scientists have been hacking AlphaFold, hacking AlphaFold. That was air quote. I realize that doesn't come through on podcasts. Yeah, it's an audio <laughs> podcast. Uh, sure. um, they've been hacking at uh, AlphaFold to actually start to mimic how proteins interact as well. Um, and so it's been fascinating how they're now taking AlphaFold and taking it to the next level. And so CASP 15 was just uh, a few weeks ago. And AlphaFold actually didn't enter this year. Um, but scientists who m- took AlphaFold and built upon it did enter and they started to model how proteins interact. And it's showing just uh, the reason I think this is a huge story is we now have a system of diff- of predicting structural biology in a way that we hadn't for years. And the level of acceleration that we're seeing in terms of how scientists are using this is accelerating really, really quickly to the point now where scientists don't even have to guess a protein structure. They can go, they can query it, they can in a matter of minutes image it and create a predicted structure and then go to the lab to actually do some of the work on the uh, on the confounding factors and some of the hard work about sort of putting this into practice. Um, Meta's work is very similar. EMS Fold predicted 600 million proteins because it was across multiple organisms. Um, and they use a natural language model, which isn't as accurate as AlphaFold because it does it isn't looking at sort of the geometry of the potential shapes of uh, of the actual like um, uh, compounds themselves, but be, from this like transformer based a machine learning model, it, you also get a much quicker response. So what takes ten minutes from AlphaFold takes only a couple minutes from. Uh, EMS fold. So the amount of information that you can generate so that you can get to some of the experimental work uh, is so fast uh, now that it's just reshaping the entire landscape of how proteins work. This is the baseline work that we need to do to think about any development of drug targets, of disease modeling, 
uh, mechanisms of how cells function and work. It's an incredible tool. The the um the the interesting yeah I was gonna say the interesting thing about this is that is that understanding these connections and understanding how different things interact with it lets us lets us derive better drugs and things like that that can bind directly to protein sites because because a lot like like so uh, for people who don't or who aren't biologists or don't remember their high school biology proteins basically let you do let let your cells do chemical reactions at lower temperatures. Than they would, you know, temperatures that won't kill you basically for, for, for all is the easiest way to, to describe it. It does a bunch of other stuff as well, but it does that by grabbing onto something and then the, the protein moves in some way that was ineffable and un- understandable until very recently. And, and now we have a model for that that we can get in and, and look at. And it's, 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 it's really, really cool stuff. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, the people behind AlphaFold are on their way to a Nobel Prize. They won a, a breakthrough prize this year, um, which is definitely a good sign that that things are on the horizon for them. I I will say one thing about EMS fold that I think is really important is EMS fold, very different model uh, because it's a, you know, a natural language model. It really looks at sequences really well. Um, It's going to help us look at mutations in the, in proteins uh, a little more efficiently than alpha fold will. So while alpha fold can really do incredible work on just the fundamental proteins that exist. You can go to a database called Uniprot, which is like a, a database of, of known protein sequences, pull out a sequence, plug in an alpha fold. EMS is going to start to predict uh, mutations in those proteins. They'll help us attack uh, a whole host of, of other um, uh, uh, biological diseases and, uh, and issues. Who, who owns this work, Kishore? Is this owned by the companies that that do the models? Uh, who owns what? The so the code is owned by Alpha, which is part of Alphabet, but the output yeah. is not. I mean, you're basically running a piece of software, uh, and they don't claim proprietary ownership of the sequence that you put into it, uh, nor the output, from what I understand. Fascinating. This, uh, the, the site you sent me is interesting. I don't know what the, the name is for this particular Google product that allows you to run code on some kind of cloud instance. Oh, that's a uh, Google Colab. So you can basically create an instance and, and run uh, all sorts of, you know, you, there's all sorts of intersections to Google products and stuff. Uh, I've always used it for like cloud-based queries. Um, but the fact that AlphaFold is built into Colab that so that like anyone can do it you can just go to this website and input a sequence yes that that was going to be my question because you can go step by step down here and expand each each step of the of the processing and look at you can literally look at the python that it's running to to process this stuff so okay so knowing that they set that up ahead of time is cool uh i'm curious not i don't know that any of us could answer this but like I would love to know like what the hardware, the machine learning acceleration situation looks like for a lot of these research teams. Like, are they running like a lot of like custom high end ASICs oh. for this stuff or do they just have like racks of off the shelf 4090s or like, I don't, I don't know. It what, depends on their budget. Brad. Yeah, I, I figured that was the case, but I, I guess, I guess the, the real question for me is, are they, are they kind of limited for budgetary reasons, primarily probably to consumer hardware or are they like much higher end like high performance computing kind of solutions out there for stuff like, I mean, obviously Google has deep pockets, so I'm sure this effort is fairly well-funded. I, I think much has been written about this, but I have not perused this myself. So uh, I don't know, but I bet you we could find out. 
So we we uh, uh, sure we know some people who run labs that do a little bit of this kind of work, and they do a mixture of cloud and local compute depending on what they want. Generally, the the my understanding is that if you have the budget to do cloud stuff and you want faster results, you might see faster results. But if you have enough data to make a keep keep a big workstation with twenty GPUs and it constantly running, then it then it behooves you to do both. Um, Keish, how are you doing on time? Do we have time to do a couple more? Or are you okay? Um, do we want to talk about, do we want to talk about dart next? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's dart to the next topic. Oh boy. NASA's double asteroid redirection test, uh, which, uh, the, the culminating event of which took place, I believe on September 26th of this year, dart was conducted by the, by NASA's planetary defense coordination office. Which is about as sci-fi a division I, sounding name. I, I assume <laughs> that's like three people sitting in a closet somewhere in like a like a like an off-brand NASA campus someplace that that uh, they don't let them out very much. No way. I I believe it's at um uh, I I think headquarters for the planetary office is in D.C. But a lot of the work is run out of JPL. So if you consider Pasadena low oh, rent, okay, no Pasadena is nice. We like Pasadena. We're friends with people from Pasadena, but it's still three people. Uh, no. Right? It's actually quite a large okay. project. It's this is really out of the uh, near Earth uh, observation, near Earth object observations program. Um, and I, you know, it's one of those programs at NASA where they uh, grant out money. So there's there's people that work in house, but also like associated people out in the world too, um, that are funded to work on okay. on stuff. And they are just looking for stuff that might hit us or come close to us. I yeah. feel better knowing that they're there then. <laughs> Um, so, so this was an attempt to to test one one method of diverting the trajectory of an asteroid that might collide with the Earth. Uh, and in this case, they did that by literally slamming a spacecraft head on at the exact opposite direction of the travel of the asteroid. Um, they chose. Did it work? Uh, yeah. What's that? Did it work? Yeah, it worked. Uh, so they reported results, I think, about a month after the impact or even less uh, and said, yes, it worked. Um, their threshold for success was to, I'm looking for the figure, they considered uh, altering the, the asteroid's orbital period by at least, I believe it was 73 seconds to be the threshold of success, and they actually altered it by about 32 minutes, give or take. So, you know, by NASA's own reckoning, this thing was a resounding success. Long history of under-promising and over-delivering. Uh, <laughs> Um, they chose, they chose an asteroid called Dimorphos, which is itself a satellite of a larger asteroid called Didymos, I assume is how this is pronounced. Um, either of those were considered an imminent threat, but they were, that was a good test subject for this. Um, the craft slammed into the asteroid at about 14,000 miles per hour. Uh, they didn't load it up with really any kind of scientific experiments or payload other than what was required to get it there and a camera. So you can go you can go on Wikipedia or on NASA's site and there's like a great succession of images of just closer and closer to this giant rock. And then you can see the very final image before it's slammed into it right above the ground, um, which is fun. Uh, it did have a, a piggyback kind of secondary satellite that detached a couple weeks before the impact and acted as sort of a, a cameraman to record the impact and, and, and see what happened from a distance there. Um, so, yeah, like that's that's kind of the gist of it is that they, you know, they, they have determined this to be, I guess, a, a fairly effective strategy. Uh, they just literally yesterday at the time of this recording put out a, a, another release about some analysis of the results. So, as you might expect, it ejected massive amounts of material 
uh, when it impacted. Um, I think they said about two, th- about two million pounds of rock were ejected from the asteroid. And they have determined uh, so far that the force of the ejecta altered the travel of the asteroid far, far more than the actual force of the impact hmm. of, the, of the spacecraft. Like three point, I, I think they said that it amplified the alteration by like 3.6 times. So you're saying that the deep impact of the rocket uh, stopped Armageddon? Sure. Uh, so that sounds so right. for, they imaged it from everywhere. So like JWST was pointing at this. Hubble was pointing at this. Like they basically were like, what if we just point every telescope we have? We can at this thing to image the actual uh, impact and, and the resultant stuff. And those are beautiful to look at, too. This isn't the only way we can move asteroids. Um, we can do things like gravity tugs where we put something right next to the asteroid and slightly tug on it using the gravity of the other object. And you can just change the trajectory without having to smack it. But this is the most American way to change the trajectory of an asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. This is the second most American way. The most American way is to put Bruce Willis up there and give him a big drill and a nuclear bomb. Yeah, until there are nukes involved, I'm going to say it could get even more American. Um, This was is this a rocky, rocky metallic asteroid? Do we or is it a dusty asteroid? Do we know it's rocky that there is like some definite like regolith on it. So it has uh, a. Uh, I can't remember what the composition was, but it is a rocky asteroid. It's not like a hard iron nickel asteroid. Though, I don't know. I don't believe so. I, I, okay. I saw it was described as a rubble pile and at one point colloquially, if that tells you anything. The um, um, the uh, the pictures like watching this happen live is one of the wonders of the modern age moments this year for me. Like like you 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 had a live feed of images coming in every couple of seconds from the from the cameraman uh, and then also the live feed of the images coming in from the probe as it was about to impact. And the last shot you see looks like it's from about five feet off the ground mm-hmm. and it has incredible definition of the rocks and the shadows and and the surface of this of this asteroid. Uh, and then you get like a partial frame on the next yeah. one because yeah, you know yeah, about yeah. the top ten percent of the image filled in before it impacted. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun. Yeah, it's it's pretty I, amazing. I'm, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the gravitational tug because I had always heard that was kind of the most plausible or or promising method of of doing this. Uh, and there's something kind of like beautiful and uh, elegant about it to me. You know, <laughs> you could do this without destroying things, but the, yes, of course, we just. Well, but but also the fact that the ejecta, I mean, of course, the equal opposite reaction, all that energy has to go somewhere. So it makes sense that hitting it really hard with something is going to make something come out the other side and, and slow it down even more. So that's yeah. that's cool. Also, maybe not surprising to know that the, the, the ejecta has now assumed a kind of comet like trail or tail form uh, subsequently. So there's that. I'm just excited because it's the kind of thing that like seems like it would be really hard to get funding for people who won't fund climate change work um when you know we, we, we yeah it's one in every 65 to 100 million years so we probably have a little bit of time left we we don't need to spend money on this right now we could we could wait until later it'll probably be fine yeah I, real quick i want to jump in here speaking of the last giant impact um did you see the story from earlier in the year i just came across it last night that uh, the the tannis dig site in i, I want to say it's like south dakota which state is tannis north dakota uh claims this has not really fully been vetted there are certainly people in different disciplines who seem still a bit skeptical about this claims that they found fossils of animals from the day of the impact of the um 
the big one. Yeah. How do you pronounce the the impact site? Chick Chicksalib. Yeah, Chicksalib. Uh, or I'm not pronouncing that right. I, I believe. I, 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 I've never heard it said out loud, but yes, the, the asteroid that, that wiped out the dinosaurs, like the, this, this dig claims to have found parts of animals, fish fossils with all kinds of telltale geologic evidence of having been exposed to the factors on the day of the impact. Again, this is still under, under study. How would they know uh, down to the day? That seems... Well, they had a calendar and, <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, there's a big X and then the day before is circled and then that day is not circled. So, you know, it's just process of elimination. Uh, who knows if it's maybe the next day, but it's, it's mainly analysis of traces of geologic material. Uh, like they found they found the kind of glass spheroids in the gills of the fish that contain traces of. I don't know if you're you're familiar with the boundary in the geologic record. We're talking KT boundary time. Yeah. Yes. So I found I found out last night that apparently the term KT boundary is no longer in fashion. Now it's the KPG boundary. Oh. Uh, it's, it's for for paleogene rather than tertiary. So it's now it's now the Cretaceous paleogene boundary. Uh, anyway, what is it? There's like a tiny layer of iridium around the entire world on at the point where the impact occurred. Anyway, they they look for traces like that primarily in these fossils and and are surmising that these animals were exposed to the direct effects of the impact. Look, Brad, some fish just like to huff indium line glass beads. You can't stop them. They're just <laughs> they're just going to get them in their gills. It, it, you can't. You, nothing can stop that. Um, yeah. Should we talk about, uh, real quick about fusion? Because that was the news this week. Um, uh, the the uh, NIF, which is I think that I, you know, I foolishly didn't write down that with the acronyms. National Ignition Facility. Thank you. I thought that's what it was, but I wasn't sure. Uh, shot uh, a couple weeks ago, shot 192 laser beams at a tiny, tiny little target filled with fuel and achieved fusion ignition in a controlled setting for the first time on Earth, which is very exciting. This is inertial confinement fusion, which is not plasma controlled fusion, which is bound in a tokamak, which is different. But the, the plasma confused fusion is the thing I always think of as the the torus shaped reactor with the plasma floating in and like it powers the impulse engines on the Enterprise is all I know. I, I, I Magnetic donut. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Correct. Tokamaks power the engine in the Enterprise. Uh, NIF was the location for the Star Trek 2009 uh, uh, engineering room. They actually shot. That's where they oh, shot. Really? The engineering. Oh, yeah. No kidding. I thought that was a, a Budweiser brewery. The, <laughs> no, the pipes, pipes are <laughs> no, no, different. Really? This is like you, all... can, you can okay. see elements of engineering, though, um, in that 2009 surgery. I'm Googling cool. pictures of this right now. That's cool. Um, so, yeah, the fuel target was about the size of a peppercorn. It's enclosed in a really cool diamond shell that's almost perfect, as perfectly round as we can make it, it seems like. It has just a tiny little tube through that they can feed the fuel in. Um the laser put in 2.05 megajoules of energy into the fuel. The reaction produced about 3.15 megajoules of energy. So this is the big deal. We put some energy in and we got more energy out because of the fusion reaction happening. Now, there's an asterisk because, of course, the lasers are pretty inefficient. So getting the lasers to produce 2.05 megajoules of energy required about 300 megajoules from the grid. So we have a Look, there's work to do some, is, some optimizations. is the takeaway here. Yeah, some optimizations. Should, do we need to really very quickly define fusion? It's, fusion is kind of the other nuclear process by which energy can be released. Yeah, it's the one we're all most familiar with because it happens in the sun every yeah, single yeah, moment yeah. of every day. 
So so all, all, all nuclear power plants operate on fission, which is splitting atoms, which produces a lot of waste. Fusion, less waste, much more efficient. Is Essentially what no sun. waste because you're basically taking hydrogen, fusing it together and forming helium. We don't go beyond that. We don't have right. the uh, ability to have helium form uh, higher uh, energy uh, compounds, but um, that that's the fusion that we're talking about here. Uh, and it's not just about... Yeah. Um, ignition, which is initial fusion, but actually sustaining that fusion for some period of time. And so this fusion actually lasted, you know, close to uh, a few seconds uh, to produce that much energy. Uh, which is a long yeah. time. In and the way it land. produces yeah. energy is like how every kind of reactor at scale works is basically it generates a ton of heat. In this case, it emits a ton of neutrons. And those neutrons will go get absorbed into something like a heating jacket or something. And that thing gets hot. And then we use that to like heat water to generate steam. And that'll spin a turbine or something. And that'll generate energy. So, I mean, the, the upshot is this is a process like work on fusion has been going on now for 70 years. We started in the 50s, I think um, it's it's been a bunch of tiny iterative steps. But this is a kind of a big milestone along the way. It feels like to, to me, I, I'm not a fusion expert. Um, the 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 further journey from here into SimCity style fusion power plants that that let us all get free of fossil fuels forever and run clean hydrogen helium producing uh, power plants. It seems like there's still lots more work to to come in the future, right? Yeah, I would say um, uh, my friend Kyle Hill, who's a, a, a science YouTuber, kind of put it in this way that I think is is easy to understand. There's like four milestones we really have to hit here. Uh, one is just to achieve ignition at all, have fusion happen at all, even if it's energy like a, a net energy negative. Then there's what happened yesterday, which is achieving net energy positive, where some of the energy we put in uh, from the lasers, in this case, uh, we produce more energy out. Then there's the next step, which is uh, the energy of the system put in is less than the energy that comes out, which means like handling all of the the 300 megajoules coming from that fed from the grid into these laser lamps. Well, and presumably like making the fuel and stuff right. like that. Too, so that's right? all part of that milestone. And then the fourth milestone is actually building a system around all of this. They actually generate power. Um, so all of those steps, yeah. you need higher and higher energy. And for the most part, from like the 50s through, I would say, like the early 2000s, the net, the energy increase that we're seeing uh, along the scale was following kind of a Moore's law kind of axis of, of gain. And then it slowed down in the 2000s as we had to build like bigger and bigger systems to actually generate the kind of energy output. Like you go to NIF. Like the 192 lasers, they are the most old school lasers you've seen. They're built with these flash lamps, these giant tubes. They're like freaking two feet long tubes. And there are hundreds of them that flash. And then they, uh, the uh, laser, the light pulse that's sort of generated goes through these concentrators to make a laser. A laser pen that we have in, in our like hip pocket uh, over the side has somewhat more advanced top technology than those flash lamps do. That's a, you know, a bit of a extreme here. But I just want to acknowledge like these systems were built with old technology. So there are efficiencies that will come from building more modern systems here that will help 
um, balance that equation, but we still have a long way to go. So the ratio of energies is oftentimes referred to as Q. So the energy in versus energy out. So that we got to Q1 here. We need to get to something uh, close to Q10 uh, to have a viable um, a ratio to build a, uh, a power uh, generation system. And, that, and that's what the goal of the IDER project is in southern France, that the U.S. and the EU and China and uh, uh, I can't remember what the other two countries are. It's 35 anyway, countries. Yeah. It's a huge project. There's actually like I think there's 12 tokamaks coming online in the next uh, like 15 to 20 years. Uh, so this isn't a, a small uh, scale situation where we're relying just on one uh, project. Uh, but IDER is the la- largest one. Uh, we've never achieved ignition with a tokamak. So this is, there's a lot to prove with that technology where we're using magnetic fields, magnetic fields that are 300 times as powerful as the magnetic field of Earth to confine plasma to force the kind of pressure to achieve that fusion. But there is a lot of hope based off of the science that that is the more legitimate pathway to power generation, even though it's decades off. NIF, to be cynical just for a second basically allowed us to put a little bit of deuterium and tritium, you know, isotopes of hydrogen in the middle of this and shoot a bunch of lasers on it and and test the output. Well, what other radioactive materials could we put into a target and test uh, in a facility without actually exploding it? You'd almost think a nuclear weapons facility would be really interested in that kind of technology. Uh, And guess what Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory does? Um, So there is some military purposes to this to about testing fuel so i wouldn't think about nif as like the project that gets us to a power plant because of the system that it's designed like you shoot a target this hall rom as it's called uh, to generate the energy now you have to do if even if that proves viable now we have to design a system where like a hall rom like perfectly falls into place and we shoot it with all these lasers and ignites and then another one falls into place and shoots and ignites. And that has to happen like every less than a second. Like you can imagine all the failures in like dropping a pellet perfectly into a line of lasers. It's just a burp gun of, <laughs> of ping pong balls going through a giant laser cannon. Yeah. I remember first going to NIF. I went to the facility in like 2009 and they had like an animation of that. And I laughed out loud. I was like, come on. Enough with that. That like that like I understand the point of this system, but stop joking around with that being a viable way of producing a, a power plant. Um, that being said, this is an incredible milestone just to get to Q one, uh, and, and so the fact that we're seeing progress and hopefully seeing progress in the tokamaks over the next ten years is something to celebrate. Is it is it an oversimplification to suggest that once you know once fusion is stably and efficiently achieved that it's the end of the world's energy problems? I mean, is there even a need for diversification? You know, like kind of solar solar like orbital solar collectors and stuff like that, or is that like is that the holy grail, or or is it more complicated than that? I don't want to say it's the end because like tritium costs like thirty thousand dollars a gram right now, um, so it's not like a cheap fuel. So we have to come up with ways to generate the fuel that's actually appropriate for these uh, facilities. But if you could do that, there's enough like hydrogen in like a cup of water to power your house for a year um, with fusion technology. So we get into the place where the energy output isn't the issue anymore. It is finding the fuel and it has no emission for uh, all intents and purposes. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, the 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 only thing that's bad is the neutrons eventually make the the cladding for the reactor a little, little hot, but like compared to what comes out of a fission reactor, it's basically nothing, right? Yeah, you turn off the the input to a uh, a fusion reactor, fusion stops. Yeah, turns out that's nice. It's a good. It's a good thing. Um, Kishore, thank you so much for coming by. We we always it's always nice to have it's nice to have a visit that's not about the impending apocalypse due to a virus. So um, you know we'll we'll have to do this again sometime. I I have one more kind of general question for you, and, I, and this may not, you may not be the person to answer this, so, so I apologize in advance. But like all of the stuff we talked about today are all kind of application science we, we, we don't talk a lot about theoretical science in just in general much less the popular uh the popular science conversation world and like all of these all of this work is based on decades of theoretical research that it seems like as a country we don't really do very much anymore often we you know, we spend all of our money and time and energy on applications for things we've already figured out and there's a little bit less on the on the act, actually hey what happens if we do this and and how how does this part of the world work in a way that may not have any kind of long-term application I mean, my short answer is like first and foremost we talked about quintessence for a while which is not a word that uh, I, you're basically asking like uh, our basic research like and and its value to uh, the the larger kind of ecosystem of people and and talking about that more storytelling about basic research is hard because we are naturally inclined to say like what does this mean why does it matter how does it relate to like my life and basic research essentially is in its purest form is curiosity driven. And like, we don't have any connection outside of like increasing the body of knowledge without any like overly prescribed notions of where that, that kind of goes. We still invest a ton of money in basic research from just a pure money standpoint. It's just that the amount of money as percentage of our GDP has fallen since the uh, since the 50s and 60s. So we're not investing nearly as much as we used to. A number of other countries are investing a lot more. I think the success of basic research is in everything that we use, our, our phones to uh, on down the line, like the nature of of uh, like of technology that's in Hubble is in each of our uh, smartphones is, is kind of a ubiquitous concept now. So we don't know what we can achieve from all of this. But I think by telling the stories far enough on the pipeline that it can capture the imagination, gives people insight that there's all this work that has to come before it to get to that point. And it's important to support that endeavor, um, as opposed to just looking at the pure application. And I think talking about projects like AlphaFold, which actually doesn't do anything on its own, it's a tool to enable that kind of work, helps tell that story more. And I think that's what we... Um, that's the opportunity space is to tell more stories with the underpinning of all of that work. I mean, so much of when I listen to Fospod is like, that's the story of Fospod to me is like all of these technologies that enable the technologies that we use every day. Jeremy, Jeremy Allison described it as the plumbing is as he builds the plumbing of the internet. And I think that's maybe the most apt. And it's the same thing here with science. So, so, and just so people have an idea of scale, like our funding in the U S for, for science in general is, is almost infinitesimal compared to the money we spend on other things like military budget and, yeah, and stuff like that. Right. Um, so, so we're not talking about a, a ton of money. We're talking about, we are still talking about billions of dollars though. So it's not nothing either. Of course, but, 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 but yeah, billions of dollars compared to, it's not, it's not like we're buying a fighter jet that cost a few billion dollars. Um, anyway, 
I guess that'll wrap it up for us this week. Kishore, thank you so much for coming by. Where can people find out, find you and find out more about you in a, in a, what I assume is a post Twitter world by now. One can hope that it's a post Twitter world. Uh, I have stopped podcasting. (laughs) This is the first time in 10 years I haven't had a podcast. And uh, my wife put it to, to me this way, the people will be okay. And I was like, wow, that's rough, but also accurate. Um, you can find me places. But where will people find out what you think about the latest MCU movies? Where will how will they know what you think? Sure. <laughs> uh, you can find me on uh the TechPod Discord. I'm also in Will's Discord. You can find me places if you need to find me. And I will espouse you with all of my thoughts about where the MCU has lost its lost its way and why Andor is the best Star Wars in a generation. But uh, I will say I am going to post some uh, my top 10 science stories of the year, like written narrative pieces and my top five science books of the year in the discord as well. So check that out. It it should post by the time the episode drops. So encourage people to check it out because there is great uh, books and narrative pieces on science that can help for this exploration. Uh, And I'll probably just continue talking even after you guys hop off the line, because that's the only way to podcast now for me. Uh, Thanks, Kishore. That'll do it for us this week. Uh, As always, the tech pod is a 100% listener supported podcast so if you would like to support the show you can find out how by going to patreon.com slash tech pod thank you supporters patrons yes thank you very much nice to see you all as always a very special thank you to our executive producer tier patrons including nick johnston paddle creek games makers of fractured bail andrew Solosky, buddy thorpe stay healthy crimes i like that one just wedge joel krauska teal not that one and mm. James Kamek. Thank you all so, so much. Oh my God. Um, I, I hope everybody, hey, uh, I don't know if where you are, but where we are, COVID cases are spiking again. RSV cases and flu cases are spiking. So go get your flu shots. Yes. Wear a mask. Be safe out there. It's rough out there. Don't get sick at Christmas because that sucks or the mm-hmm. holiday season in general. And we will be back next week with another episode of the Tech Pod. See you all then. Yeah.